morning, beloved. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know many are still kind of in Thanksgiving mode, whether that's with vacation or just uh, the food coma that we're still trying to come out of, all that kind of stuff. Um, but Thanksgiving, I, I, I asked many of you this morning if you ate too much, and um, I heard a variety of answers, but I was very impressed by those of you who said no, um, that you have that kind of self-control that I don't have. That's, that's good. But, um, so I know that I'm going to eat a lot at Thanksgiving, um, and so to make myself not feel so bad about it, I did not eat in the morning um, and decided to go for a bike ride and then like just you know empty stomach so that I won't feel bad about eating two meals at one time kind of situation. Um, but so Thanksgiving morning, I, I went for a bike ride, and this, mind you, is like 12 hours after Scott tried to kill me on a bike, um, but we won't talk about that. So um, I'm riding on the trail, and um, I'm on my track bike, which is this weird thing that doesn't have brakes, and there's just one gear that you're constantly in motion and strapped in. And so I'm just going and try to just keep, like, maintain a consistent speed on this thing. And I, as I'm going down the trail, there's a guy coming towards me, and there's not a lot of people out Thanksgiving morning. And so I look up, and, and there's just kind of this thing where a lot of people look angry while they're working out. So I just, like, I get it. It hurts. I, I get it. Um, but for, for that very reason, I try to make sure that I look happy. Like, I'm enjoying this, aren't you? Um, but I, so I smile at the guy as he's coming by, and I take notice of him. He's on a mountain bike. Like, it's, it's like a cheaper mountain bike. And so not the easiest thing to ride a long distance or to ride fast. Um, and so he's coming at me, and he looks up at me, and he's smiling, like, really big, genuine smile. And so I'm smiling as we're coming across each other. And um, he, he goes by, I think nothing of it. But then all of a sudden, I hear this noise of somebody like huffing, like I can hear their breathing before I can like actually hear the motion of the wheels or anything else. And this guy has turned around and he has caught up with me on this mountain bike. I'm like, he is trucking to be able to get that mountain bike to catch up to me after turning around. And so I turn and look at him, and he's big grin ear to ear. And he looks like, uh, and I don't mean this in a mean way, this is just what reality is. He looks like what my seven-year-old would look like in terms of what he's wearing if seven-year-old Leland could dress himself. His hair looks like it's just wild and out of control like Leland would come here looking like if I didn't say, like, go brush your hair. Like, all these kinds of things. And so I'm just kind of like intrigued. Like, he looks just so happy. And he's like, hi. And I was like, hey, happy Thanksgiving. And, and he's like, I can't breathe. And so I slow down a little. And, and we start this conversation. And the and, and first thing he wants to say is like, can we race? And I'm like, okay. Like, yeah, we can race. And so um, he, he sets the course. He's like, when we get to that point, we're going to race to that point. And I was like, all right. And so I'm kind of cluing in. as like, what's going on here? And like, he's just so happy. And like, this is making me happy. So I'm there like, all right, I'm going to count it down. When we get to one, you better go. I'm not going to hold back on you, man. And he's like, all right, all right. And so, so we have three, two, one. And, I, and like, I, I let him take off. And I realized, like, even though he killed himself to catch up to me, like, he's got a lot left in him. And so my pride kicks in. And I'm like, well, I can't let that happen. So I take off, and I quickly pass him. And I was like, what am I doing? And I'm like, let him catch up. And so he catches up, and, like, I can see the smiles getting bigger and bigger as he passes me, and he blows through the finish line. And I'm like, dude, you're so fast, and all this stuff. And he's just, like, having the time of his life. And um, so now he's riding with me. He's like, can I ride with you? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, this is way more fun with people. And so um, we're riding along together, and, and I'm just like, hey, do you, do you know who Jesus is? I'm like, of course you do, Kevin. You're the pastor. And so he's, he's like, yeah, I know him. He freed me. And I'm like, man, like, 
been trying to get my church to know that for three months. <laughs> like, you're right. And so I'm like, so what did, what did he free you from? And, and he, just, he just launches in to all these stories, and it's like fun and chaotic because he's confusing all these different stories in Scripture, but like every bit of it, he's just excited and bragging about Jesus. And I just love it. And as we get close to where I need to turn off to head home, I'm like, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to have to turn here. And he's like, can I show you where my church is? And you can meet me at church on Sunday. And I was like, <laughs> and Anthony's his name. Pray for him. Pray a blessing over him. I was like, Anthony, I, I actually work for a church, and I'll be at my church. But I'm so glad that you're connected in a church. And it was just so good. And like, he just continues to brag. And, and it's just like, so encouraging to me to hear. Like, man, I, I, I want beloved to be full of Anthony's. I want to be an Anthony. Like, to experience that kind of joy and freedom. And the first thing you say, it's like, I, I couldn't set it up more in light of what we've been preaching for the last three months. For me to say, like, do you know who Jesus is? And his first response is, he freed me. Like, to know the freedom of Christ, that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And then to brag, to brag all the time about Jesus and this church that he's inviting me to be a part of. Like, how beautiful is that? I just love it. But it's got me thinking, like, bragging. Like, what are the things we brag about? That was the name tag question this morning. What, what do you like to brag about? And, and don't feel bad if you didn't give the churchy answer. It's okay. Like, and everyone's like, oh, he's going to say we should be bragging about Jesus like Anthony. But it's okay. <laughs> Or the wife one, yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. Our bragging, our bragging tends to be about something that we have a lot of confidence in or, ironically, something we don't have a lot of confidence in. You've heard the whole, like, compensation. Some people brag because they're really confident in something, and some people brag about things because they're actually really insecure in it. And you can apply that to all kinds of things in life. But what do you brag about? What are you boasting in? is because there's a genuine security in that. There's a genuine trust. There's a genuine confidence. There's a genuine value and treasure placed on that. Or is it really a masquerade? That I'll brag about this because I'm actually really unsure about it. And so that's the tension we need to bring to the text today, and we're actually finishing our sermon series through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. So we're going to be in chapter 6, the last few verses, if you want to make your copy of Scripture ready. Galatians chapter 6, starting where we left off last week in verse 11. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Um, Paul has been writing, and so remember the context of all of this. This is an apostle sent to the Gentiles a couple thousand years ago. He plants churches all over in his missionary journeys, and then he wrote these letters, um, one of them being Galatians, as we know it. The book of Galatians is a letter that he wrote to these churches that he helped plant. And he knows of some tension, some people have crept in, and all this stuff. And so um, this is where we pick up. Remember that, uh, verse 11, Paul writes, and he says, Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. And so a shift has taken place in the letter. Because in the ancient world, you did not just go to Office Depot or click on Amazon and get another ream of paper. Paper was valuable and expensive and difficult to make and come by. And so you didn't have a typewriter, all this stuff. It was a long and skillful process to write something out. And so because of the expense of paper, you wanted to have someone who was skillful in writing to write out a formal letter for you. You wanted a scribe. You wanted someone who could write carefully, 
clearly and concisely so that you save paper space, so that the, the ink would be legible when it's delivered to the recipients, to the audience, but also so that you're not just burning through a ton of paper. And so Paul typically, like sometimes in his letters, he would actually say who was writing for him. Like he's dictating this. Someone else is writing it down on the paper or the parchment. And so he makes a shift here to where now Paul takes up the quill himself as he concludes his letter. He says, look at the big letters. Look how massive and essentially obnoxious my handwriting is because I'm not a professional scribe. But I want to write this ending for you personally. In my own handwriting, I'm going to write to you, see the large letters. So what we see from this, Paul writing in his own hand is that this is deeply personal. Like the deep and profound love that Paul has for the Galatian church. That as he concludes this letter, he's like, hey, wait, thank you so much for all you've done. I'll, I'll take that. And in his own handwriting, so like just imagine how it goes from like this nice, neat print to all of a sudden now it's like a kindergartner, like, all right, here we go, here we go, got the big crayon kind of situation. And Paul starts to write in his own hand. He writes, verse 12, those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, not only, or but only, to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. You've said this over and over, Paul. But now he wants to say it in his own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. They want to make a good impression. The whole circumcision thing, remember this idea? That they're taking things from the law. These Jews who have come in, they're in the church and they're like, yes, you believe the gospel. It's salvation by grace through faith. That's great. Jesus died for you. He's your sacrifice. He is our substitute. That's all beautiful. But remember, we've been part of the people of God for a long time. And we know some things. So if you really want to be part of the people of God, you also need to do these things. And so they start to add the law onto the gospel, particularly these things that are just outwardly visible, these performance things. So be circumcised, an outward sign of being part of the, of the people of God. Be circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, emphatically, no. You don't need to do that. Like, with the feasts, the festivals, the Sabbath, all these things that would be signposts of being the people of God. And Paul is saying, no, stop adding to the gospel. Your salvation is entirely by grace through faith. It is the gospel. If you add to the gospel, you've lost the gospel. These people are trying to distort it. And they're doing this in a legalistic, religious way, a pious way that says, look at what I have done. And we today, 2021, can relate. Because we might not be saying you must be circumcised to be a child of God. We might not be saying like, oh, you observe the Sabbath, you gotta do this feast, this festival, all this stuff. But we absolutely, even in our own hearts, feel the weight of I must measure up. When the gospel is, you will never measure up. But God loves you and he's made a way for you. His name is Jesus. He died for you in your place and he rose again victorious so that you can have everlasting life if your faith is in him. So believe him, trust him, follow him. And so Paul says, look, they're trying to make a good impression. This is the heart of it. A good impression is shallow. It's just appearance. It's just about your performance. Whereas the real gospel happens deep within us. The gospel brings about outward change, but it starts with this inward change that's deep inside of us, and then it blossoms and it grows and pushes outward like the fruit that we've been talking about the last few weeks. It starts because of the DNA of the plant. 
And the nutrients being pushed out and Jesus saying things like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So you want to bear fruit? You just need to stay attached to me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Paul's saying here, look, all their performance stuff, this legalism, all the stuff they're trying to add on to you to make you think that you can measure up. Somehow you can perform your way in, merit your way in. It's like, no, 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 no. That's all shallow. It's surface level. It's just a facade. Real gospel work happens deep inside of you. And then it'll make its way out. And then that second part of that, he says why they do this? Only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Why are they doing this? Why do legalistic people hold to these high, pious standards that they want to impose on others? And Jesus has words for them like, you whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look so brilliant and white, but inside you're full of death and decay. Why? Why do people want to do that? What, what, what makes us like just gravitate towards the I can perform, I can look good? Just think about this. In our culture today, is it offensive to stop and help a homeless man? Is it offensive to stand up and fight human trafficking? Is it offensive to fight for justice and mercy in all kinds of ways. No. Our culture's like, yeah. In fact, like, we, we have more social justice movements than ever in the history of humanity right now. There, there is an organization fighting every kind of injustice you can imagine. And I love that, and, I, and I'm applauding that. But here's the thing. You step into those things, and nobody will say, you're ridiculous. How offensive. It's beautiful. It's celebrated. Adopting orphans is celebrated. Doing all these beautiful God-honoring things is celebrated. But the moment that you open your mouth and you say, you're a wretched sinner and you can't do anything to save yourself. But there's a man who's actually the God-man. He's the mediator between God and man who died in your place because you could not pay the price. It was a debt you could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. You say that and suddenly it's offensive. There is only one way to be saved. There's only one way back to the Father. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is exclusive. There is no other way. And it becomes deeply offensive. The cross of Christ is offensive. The religious appearance? Wow. Good. Keep doing good. But you preach the gospel, and suddenly it's an offense. And so he's saying they want to avoid that. They want to avoid the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is that you cannot save yourself. Doing good is not offensive, but the cross surely is. And Paul's pointing that out. Then he continues in verse 13. In light of that, that the people who are a danger here are trying to add to the gospel, distort the gospel, and they're placing this legalistic pressure on you that you must perform instead of simply receiving and living out of the favor of God, live for the favor of God. He's saying it's nonsense. And now he says in verse 13, for even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves and yet they want, to be circum- they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. Meaning like, hey, look, look at the fruit of our ministry. Look at how I'm convincing others to do good and all this stuff. Verse 14, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. This is what it all comes down to. 
what we boast about is indicative of what our heart trusts and treasures. You want to know why you brag about something? If it's not because you're actually putting on a mask, a facade, it's a front, that it's really an insecurity, then what it really is is something that you trust and you treasure. And so what we boast about is going to reflect what is in our heart as something that we trust and we treasure. And so you think about this through the lens of this whole letter, the legalistic religion, the performance-based idea, the, the people coming in and trying to place the law on you again to take away your freedom. It's all about boasting in yourself. It's what you can do. It's performance. Whereas the gospel, the gospel of Christ is that we will boast in the cross. What we could never do. We'll boast in him, the one who died in our place, the one who is our salvation that we could never merit on our own, but who gives it freely at his own cost to him. And we just respond in faith. Paul says the world is crucified to me and I to the world. It has no power over me. I am free. And freedom means I can live this life without constantly grasping at everything. Like Reggie challenged us to enter into this season and just spoiler alert, we'll, we'll talk about this starting next week, but the, the rhythm of different disciplines that we focus on every month, um, we, we intentionally put Sabbath in December every year. That in the season when we typically get the busiest, there's so much pressure of doing all these things that are supposed to be good things. And we forget God actually wants us to just pause, to simply enjoy him, to be with him to trust him to be at work when we are not. This is what freedom looks like, to not run through life grasping at everything. I think like so many different venues that you can apply that in your life. I know in my life, I can just sit and make a list of where am I grasping at things? In my marriage, what am I just grasping at? Raising my kids, why do I get frustrated? My job my friendships, my everything, in every sphere, you'll see, like, where are you just grasping at things? And that's at the heart of legalism, to think that somehow I can do this, when the gospel is, let go. It doesn't mean you're devoid of responsibility. It means you can trust God, who's in control. And trust that you really are free. You're free. The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. I just live for him. And Paul continues in verse 15. He says, for both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. There's no more inferiority complex, the fear, the envy we talked about. There's no more superiority complex, the lethal pride growing in us. Just a new creation. That deep change within us that wells out. And then 16, he says, May peace come to all those who follow this standard and mercy even to the Israel of God. This is the result of living in this gospel freedom that peace and mercy are experienced. They're experienced. It goes beyond just this is the reality, but you actually experience the reality. Verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And just fun little theology nerd tidbit for you. Remember, Paul's writing this in his own hand. Hands that are scarred. And every time he looks at his body, he sees actual scars, marks of his love for Jesus. And who is he writing to? The churches in Galatia. You remember, if, if you were here the first year when we planted this a couple years ago, we went, throughout that year, we went through the book of Acts. We talked about Paul's missionary journey when he goes through the region we now call Galatia, 
or then called Galatia, now we call it Turkey. Um, Lystra is a city in this region. So Lystra is likely one of the recipients of this letter where Christians there would actually remember the day that Paul showed up, healed a man by the power of God, and they started worshiping him like he was a god. And he's like, no, 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 no. And the tables turn, and suddenly he is dragged outside of the city and left for dead because they've stoned him. They have taken up rocks like baseballs and thrown them as hard as they can at this man until he is apparently dead. And then his friends come around and gather, and he stands up. (laughs) He's alive. Like, likely people reading this letter would remember that day. I remember the day that we thought that man was dead because we pegged him with rocks, covered in blood. Like, it's not a pretty sight when someone has rocks thrown at them until they're dead. And he writes in his own hand, from now on, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And yet, this is the man saying, I'm free. I'm free. This is real. This is personal. He loves them. And he concludes the last verse. It says, brothers and sisters, from that gospel family language, brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Final word, grace. Let grace be with you. You could end it saying, let obedience mark you. All the things he could say but he's emphatic about this. It's good news, meaning gospel, because it's grace. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. God gives it freely. And it will change you. But you live out of the favor of God, not for it. So grace be with you. And so as we conclude this series, this is a little different than normal, um, but just kind of inspired by the idea of Paul writing with his own hand, And so to conclude this series and kind of walk us back through it, I wrote you a letter. Um, So I would like to share this letter with you. Um, And I did not handwrite it because then I wouldn't even be able to read it. Um, Dear beloved, I write to you as Kevin, one of your pastors, but also your brother. That's because we were brought into the family of God by our brother Jesus through whom God the Father has adopted us in by rescuing us from the evil in us and also around us. Um, And as his children, he loves to give us gifts and callings, like to be a pastor, to be a father, to be a follower, to be anything that he calls us to. He does that. And these are meant to be for our common benefit and also his glory. It's such a privilege to live for his glory. We find our identity in him, not from what we receive from others or even what we tell ourselves. We are the Lord's. We are his. This is who we are. It's how we make sense of who we are. And it's good news, also known as the gospel. And the gospel informs us of who we are. I was week one. It's absolutely insane that we would slip into believing false gospels. We hear them from others. We hear them even in our own minds. They aren't even gospels because they aren't truly good news. Because if you change the gospel, you have lost the gospel. The true good news is that Jesus came in love and grace to save sinners like me and you. He came to his own creation that rebelled against him after he created it good. It rejected him. 
He suffered, he died as a substitute and a sacrifice for us to cover our sins. And then he rose again victorious over sin and death so we too can rise to everlasting life with him. We are free. God has accomplished this for us. It's not something we can earn. So don't listen to anyone, including even me or a supernatural being, if they try to tell you otherwise. I was weak too. The only gospel is the one Jesus came preaching, entrusted to his apostles, and has been faithfully passed down to us as preserved in God's word. See the way in which the gospel powerfully transforms us like it radically did for the apostle Paul, who once tried to kill followers of Jesus, but also historically has been defended and transmitted faithfully all the way from its divine revelation to us. The gospel is reliable. The gospel transforms us personally, but also communally. It's reconciliation between God and man, but also between men. Even in the early church, we could see many from profoundly different backgrounds and beliefs that would come together into something new, something beautiful. And this is because what is at the center of the gospel is God himself. So we now have fellowship marked by unity, by grace, and by love, while we all hold Christ at the center. The gospel forms a beautiful community. Sometimes we slip, sometimes we stumble, not acting like the children of God that we are. We forget, we act like Christ is not at the center of it all. And this always results in hurt. Pain is inevitable when this happens. But when this happens, we need to address it. Let's always do this in love. So can we aim for reconciliation and confrontation? It's not about winning or boasting or besting someone else. It's about seeing the reconciliation the gospel brings about being restored again so that God is glorified in all things. And don't forget, it's the power of the gospel that does this. So we must be clear on this. What we do with our lives does matter, but only as a response to this gift, this grace, the love shown to us. We are justified, meaning we're declared right before God by faith in Christ. And we cannot be good enough or ever perform in a way to merit a right standing before God. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's what makes it good news. He has done it all for us. So in light of what God has done, what can I say? Who's Kevin? Why would I live for myself or think that I could ever do this myself? No, I'm dead. I've died. I died with Jesus a long time ago so that I could actually truly live. Now I can live for real an everlasting life that flows out of faith in God's son, Jesus, who loves me so much he literally died for me. We live out of the favor of God, not for it. If I live my life acting like I could earn this position in God's family, I act like Jesus died needlessly. That would be an incredible offense, but also such a tragedy. So don't be foolish, beloved. Did some demonic wizard cast a spell on us, creating such confusion? Don't buy it. It's not real. There's so many things that can capture our attention with spell-like influence. They captivate us and they make us obsess over them. Not the least of them is the narrative in our own minds and in the culture that we swim in saying that we have to somehow measure up. So consider this. Did you gain your salvation in the beginning by your own effort or by the Spirit? It's obviously by the Spirit. And that's the essence of grace. It's undeserved favor from God. So what makes you now think you need to somehow earn what he freely gave? We live out of the favor of God, not for it. And there's a surefire way to fight these spells. Gaze constantly on the gospel. 
It is more beautiful. It is more compelling. And it is the truth. Have you ever paused to consider where these differing paths will lead? If we walk the path of performance, trying to measure up by our obedience, we have to look at the standard that path is under. The law gives us a clear picture of what righteousness looks like. Look into that mirror and it's painfully clear. What we see staring back is not good. In fact, it's cursed. The law was even given with the promise that if you don't do it all, you're going to be cursed. How many of us have done it all? Yet the other path is so different. It's the path of blessing. It's the path that looks not into the mirror at ourselves, but instead to Christ who became a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. On that historic tree, the cross, Jesus became sin. He became a curse so that by faith in him, we would become righteous. He exchanged our curse with his blessed righteousness. Faith is the path to blessing. So walk it confidently and continually. So you may logically ask now, what then is the point of the law if it leads just to a curse? Precisely that. But we should see it. It shows us who we are in and of ourselves and who Christ is as the only way for us to find righteousness in life. We now can relate rightly to it, knowing that we learn from the law what it looks like to navigate this broken world as the holy children of God, but not so that we can become such. It's because we are. In fact, the more we peer into the mirror of the law, the more we see our brokenness. This can crush us or draw out a greater love and awe of God and his gospel, his work of salvation for us undeserving sinners. So when your sin is great, your savior is greater. So once we were slaves, we were enslaved to sin, bound and unable to free ourselves, blind with eyes that could not see regardless of how much we try to open them, dead in our trespasses with as much hope for conjuring up life as the last lifeless corpse that you saw having quickened life to itself. But that is not who we are anymore. By God's grace, we have been redeemed. We have been adopted into God's family. We are alive and we are sons of God. His very own spirit is now in us testifying to our sonship. And this is something that we have to intellectually grasp, but also experientially enjoy. Beloved, understand and experience your sonship in Christ. If you can keep it in your minds and hearts that because of the gospel you are sons, you won't fall back into the bondage of legalism or inflicted on others. Perhaps it's helpful to remember who first shared the gospel with you. Like when Paul first shared the gospel with the Galatians, the gospel is shared by sons and daughters of God to others as brothers and sisters, welcoming them into the family of God with grace and love. This profound grace and love should mark us. Didn't Jesus say the world would know that we follow him by our love for each other? So seek and form gospel relationships. Even as children and family dynamics, there can be a vast difference between some children and others. You remember Abraham had two sons, one born of his free wife and one born from a slave given to him. Their children correlate to our realities. The son born of the free woman was born by divine provision as promised to Abraham when he and his wife were past childbearing age. The child born into slavery from the slave was the result of a human effort. So remember your freedom as children of the promise. What God has done, what we cannot do. Your freedom comes from the work of God your father, not your own. What's crazy is that people can experientially live out this reality like they have no freedom. To live like we're not free. And that's what it's like to slip back into legalism when Christ has set you free. You have to remember that you're free. This freedom is what Christ freed us to experience. 
And sometimes you may forget this and wonder how to experience it again. But freedom is experienced in remembering who set you free. So fix your eyes on him. It's surely no surprise that some are envious of our freedom and want to sabotage us. So stay the course and beware those who would try to stop you. Um, pardon my pointedness here, but I personally would just as soon they destroy themselves than see you led astray. I love you, and I want you to never forget how much God loves you. That love was freely given to you and of great cost to our Lord. His very life was the ransom that was paid. So don't let others convince you that there's more to be paid. We are free, but that freedom can be dangerous if we use it to serve our own flesh. If we enjoy our freedom for selfish gain and forget the grace that met us and the forgiveness of God, we will soon cut ties with everyone and be left truly alone with our own self-absorption. The law of love must prevail. And biblical love comes from God and empowers us to love each other sacrificially. Like Jesus taught, forgiven people forgive others. Love is going to cost us, but we have an infinite bank account from which to draw on for it. There's an ongoing battle within us because we're still in the flesh, bodies corrupted by sin while awaiting our full redemption on the day of the Lord. These competing desires wage war and evidence themselves as either works of the flesh or fruit of the spirit. We act according to our greatest desire and our greatest desire is what we treasure most. So see the infinite treasure that is Christ. The stage and lights are set for what's going to play out most. The arena is in our relationships. In our sin, we become more and more self-absorbed. And this plays out in either looking up at others in envy and fear or looking down on others in superiority and provocation. But we have been crucified. We no longer live for ourselves. And that frees us to not see others above or below us, but beside us. We can genuinely love each other horizontally when we see God's vertical love for us. We are sons and daughters of God. So we engage each other as brothers and sisters. The gospel does this because if the gospel changes me, it changes my relationships too. And then this week, I'm the kind of person who always wants to look at the big transcendent why. One of the meaning of things is just so important. So we can look at all of this and ask, why? Why would God create us? Why allow us to rebel? Why graciously bring us back into fellowship with him at his own cost? There's so many answers we simply don't have, but one is resoundingly clear, for his glory. And that's at the heart of it, right? In the gospel, there's no room for boasting in ourselves, but only God. Beloved, let us forever boast in the cross of Christ. What we boast about is indicative of what our hearts trust and treasure, and we are free. We are free to see and to savor the treasure that is Christ. Let us boast more and more in our Lord and his salvation. As beloved, you are free. Will you pray? Jesus, thank you that you have freed us and that freedom cost you your life and yet you endured the cross, despising the shame, but for the joy set before you. You saw it to be a joy to free us. And we could not do that for ourselves. God, help this gospel to sink into our hearts, to radically transform us deep within and then overflow in transformed lives that point more and more to your glory, that boast more and more in you, your cross, Jesus. The thing that screams that we cannot save ourselves. 
let that be the thing that we put all of our confidence in. It's you, what you can do, your power. So we love you and praise you. And God, would you use the time that we have spent in this letter to shape us as we move forward as your people. Remind us of how much you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.